0: Um, Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Um, uh, Viren Cowell uh, and um, and I are moderating our third journal club for the journal CHEST. Viren and I I are social media editors for the journal CHEST. And we are um, going to be discussing uh, an article published in uh, CHEST this month titled Fluid Response Evaluation in Sepsis and Hypotension and Shock a randomized clinical trial and um, we're very lucky to have the first author and the senior author of the paper with us and a content liaison. Um, I'm going to introduce first Dr. Ivor Douglas uh, who is a professor of medicine in pulmonary sciences and critical care at the University of Colorado. He is also the chief for the division of pulmonary sciences and uh, critical care medicine at Denver Health Medical Center, and the medical ICU director. We also have Dr. Douglas Hansel, who is an assistant clinical professor of anesthesia at Massachusetts Massachusetts General Hospital, and he's VP and head of medical affairs at Baxter. Finally, our content liaison is Dr. Eduardo Morales Cabo de Vila, who is uh, the director of the medical ICU at the Cleveland Clinic, and he is also the program director of the Critical Care Fellowship. He's a staff physician at Cleveland Clinic. So we're gonna get started first by um, reviewing disclosures of the authors. So I'm gonna let Dr. Douglas uh, go first and review his disclosures.
1: I think that you've got me. There we go. Good afternoon, everybody. And uh, many thanks for the invitation to join the journal club. Uh, My important disclosures are funding to my institution, Denver Health, from uh, Cheetah, now Baxter Medical, for the conduct of this clinical trial that we're going to discuss with you today. Um, That was an unrestricted uh, grant as part of the coordinating program and then a multi-center RCT. I also received funding from the National Institutes of Health for uh, very related uh, trials in fluid resuscitation and shock. Um, I won't necessarily be discussing that content specifically today, but it's pertinent to this uh, this presentation.
0: Thanks, Dr. Douglas. Uh, Dr. Hansel, uh, would you mind reviewing your disclosures?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, Thank you. Uh, My main disclosure is in my title. Uh, I'm an employee of uh, Baxter, uh, which uh, as Cheetah uh, helped uh, fund and uh, uh, support the study.
0: Okay, and um, just for time's sake, uh, Dr. Morales reported no disclosures for this study. So let's get started. And um, first we're gonna give a little bit of background information um, before we start talking about the paper specifically. And we're very lucky to have some real experts in critical care medicine joining us today. So I think it's a good opportunity for us to learn from them. So the first question I have is for Dr. Hansel. Um, Dr. Hansel, could could you talk about why an intensivist should care about fluid resuscitation strategies?
2: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic. Uh, You know, we've had fluid around as a a drug or as an IV medication now for about 150 years, and it's interesting that we're still struggling with how to dose it uh, and how to know when uh, it's effective therapy. And so I think what's really exciting over the recent few years is with advances in technology, advances in physiologic understanding, we're really entering a new era where we can dose fluid better, we can assess its effectiveness, and understand it. Uh, you know, we're really looking at uh, give fluid to expand and improve perfusion, to expand and improve circulating blood volume, and using stroke volume to actually assess the cardiac output uh, lets us see the direct impact on fluid of what we're trying to actually accomplish. And so sometimes you're looking for things for so long and answers for so long, you forget what you're actually looking for. Uh, but it's exciting because I think today we can actually measure that directly uh, in real time, non-invasively, you know, at the bedside. And it really opens up a whole new world, which we'll be talking about.
0: Okay, great, thank you for giving us that background. Dr. Douglas, um, this is a question for you. I wanna know why do the guidelines, the current guidelines for management of shock recommend 30 mLs per kg for initial resuscitation of septic shock?
1: Dr. thank you. I think that there is a really important aspect to this, which is uh, how clinical trial data gets included into uh, prospective guidelines and, and protocols. And there's no doubt that the absolutely seminal work of uh, Dr. Manuel Rivers from Detroit um, really summating the uh, emerging understanding well over a decade ago about the imperative for um, uh, aggressive early fluid resuscitation, which was very much dogmatic as a paradigm at the time, uh, really led to this uh, recommendation being firmly embedded uh, into the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines as early as, uh, 2008, but certainly in the 2012 and 16 revisions, and then now in the uh, step one measure and the one-hour bundle as the of critical care medicine has uh, framed it. I think that what we need to understand is that um, early goal-directed resuscitation, uh, when protocolized, has been shown to be no better in terms of survival or organ failure outcome than a usual care approach, and this is really the summary of the three triad trials uh, promise process and arise. Not to suggest that fluid is unimportant, but I think that what we take from this is that structured protocolized care about this very crucial component of the early resuscitation efforts is far better personalized than protocolized. The study we're going to discuss today specifically did not address this uh, aspect of the uh, cares, and I'll discuss it when we talk about the findings in the study, but Just in summary, it's really important to understand that all the patients who are randomized in this trial ended up getting around 30 mils per kilo uh, crystalloid resuscitation well before they were actually randomized into the trial, even though the time frame was very short.
0: Yes, thank you for for pointing that out about the paper. Um, The last question I have is for Dr. Morellis. Um, Dr. Morellis, can you give us a little bit of background on dynamic measures of fluid responsiveness and versus like static measures, and then specifically what you do in your practice?
3: Thank you, Divya. I think that the, the, the challenge is always to try to figure out what's going on with the patient at that given time. Where, where is the patient in that uh, relationship between cardiac output and venous return? And so a single measurement to try to figure out where the patient is, uh, is dependent on so many variables that it's very hard for you to uh, know exactly where, uh, where they stand. And so literature has come and gone, trying to demonstrate that that's, the, that that's an accurate uh, measurement and given different uh, sensitivities and specificities. Uh, however, I think that the, the, the focus has shifted so we're using a dynamic meaning. How did it, does it change to certain interventions, either to changes in intrathoracic pressure, to position of the of the patient, to figure out what's going on with that relationship between cardiac output and uh, venous return. And so, uh, what do we do here? Is the, the shift has completely completely moved towards trying to assess cardiac output uh, in. When there's a change in position and we're using much more echocardiography to try to figure out those changes uh more more than anything else now non-invasive technology has had uh has been coming through through time and trying to figure out how to make that uh, type of technology operational at the bedside has been a challenge so this is the the really cool factor about this article is trying to make this operational at the bedside and seeing how that impacts the patient care.
0: Okay, great, Dr. Morales. Thank you for that. And with that, we're going to move on to the to talking about the paper. So um, the first question we have is uh, for Dr. Douglas. Um, Dr. Douglas, what was the primary aim or clinical question you were trying to answer with this study?
1: I I think that, you know, it's really important that uh, we understand that this really was uh, a first effort to prospectively evaluate the utility performance and outcomes associated with dynamic measurement of fluid responsiveness. And so we were specifically interested to assess as a primary objective, the mean, the mean difference in fluid balance. And I say here balance, not just fluid administered through the course of an ICU admission, um, using a uh, non-invasive method for dynamic assessment of fluid responsiveness in septic shock patients, particularly those uh, who had early refractory hypertension. And that objective uh, is very finite. And what I specifically mean is that we wanted to really target down on a group of patients that we considered uh, to have uh, fluid-responsive hypertension amenable to intervention. And so the study, as we'll discuss in the inclusion-exclusion criteria, uh, really honed down on a subgroup of patients that uh, had not been in the ICU for many days who didn't have uh, severe and end compensated decompensated heart failure, as an example.
0: Thank you, Dr. Douglas.
1: Thanks for setting the stage on you know, what the
4: primary aim is and what the study wanted to evaluate. So what I wanted to follow up with is, so can you go over the setting and- and how did you make the patient selection? And finally, who did you exclude and why?
1: I think, as you have some very interesting exclusions in there. Yeah, um, I'm going to deal, I'll respond initially by talking about um, the setting and the criteria for selection. And then um, the issues around exclusion are rather crucial, and perhaps I'll hand back to Doug to uh, address those aspects of it because. It, like any study design, um, the applicability or external validity of the observation is highly pertinent to the included and excluded populations. So um, what we were most interested in is identifying patients very early on in the course of uh, non-fluid responses, sepsis, hypertension, and shock. And so the study uh, uh, screened, enrolled in randomized patients um, at centers across North America and some sites in uh, the U.K., um, uh, who presented to predominantly emergency rooms uh, with a characteristic phenotype of sepsis, presumed infection source, uh, evidence of non fluid response of hypertension, persistent blood pressure systolic less than 90 after one liter of crystalloid, and uh, who were amenable to either providing consent or having a surrogate provide consent in a reasonably short space of time such that they could be randomized. And the randomization scheme here is really crucial because the um, the comparator arm here was a usual care comparator arm. This is really pertinent in the conduct of clinical trials and septic shock. Uh, options are always to provide two comparator structured arms, and our real interest was here to compare against usual care practice. Clearly, there are some challenges with that, which has to do with blinding, um, but our randomization scheme enrolled people in a so-called two-to-one ratio to an intervention uh, with a passive leg raise guided strategy to titrate fluids and presses to a series of hemodynamic outcomes, or usual care with the objective of optimizing care according to the local community standard. So that, that was the context. The uh, broad inclusion criteria were rather non, no more specific than that. Um, the enrollment was in the 24 hours from admission. And uh, we did require the patient to have two SERS criteria. Now, um, you'll accept that when the study was designed, this was prior to the step 3 definition. So our preference was to retain those, but to use the refractory hypertension criteria of a MAP less than 65 after one liter of fluid, but before the patient had received three or more liters of fluid. And it's that key uh, threshold that was crucial to identifying A group of patients early on in the course of resuscitation who might be amenable to dynamic fluid measure-guided therapy. I'm going to turn now to Dr. Hanfall, maybe to add some comments about the patients we decided not to include.
2: Thank you, Ivor. The main thing we were looking at was really do we have uh, a good understanding of how much fluid the patients had coming into the study as well as control of the fluid going forward in the study and so uh, that drove a lot of the exclusion criteria. In, in work that we did in leading up to understanding how to design the study, uh, we looked at, uh, large population data sets, uh, and we realized most people on day one of sepsis on admission to the hospital are typically around five, uh, four to five liters of fluid is, is sort of the average for that. So obviously we wanted to get people that, um, were sick enough to be in the study and, and so into the ICU and, and refractory after uh, one liter of fluid, but we wanted to catch them early enough in that fluid administration that we could actually have an impact. Obviously, if we were enrolling patients after five liters of fluid, uh, our ability to impact that uh, would be would be muted and would be less likely to uh, be able to uh, have a meaningful intervention. Um, so, hence the, the three liters. Um, the other thing that we wanted to make sure that we had control over the fluid, so when fluid was actually administered as bolus, uh that dynamic measure was used to assess that before the fluid was administered. So what we wanted to make sure any patients that were uh you know outside the control of the intensive care unit, they were off for a procedure or off to surgery, obviously uh other dynamics are going to drive the fluid administration. Uh other other uh situations such as fluid administration for DKA or other or, or uh hemorrhage uh would drive other controls of the fluid administration. So uh, those were uh, considered exclusions uh, for the trial. Um, that was really pretty much the, the focus as we looked through the uh, you know tr- uh, the exclusion criteria. Uh, I guess the other thing too is we were uh, again working on focused on septic shock. So if they had other uh, comorbid conditions or the or the diagnosis was uh, less clear, or there were other things driving uh, their um, their ICU admissions? And indeed, it wasn't sepsis. We are
1: trying to exclude those as well. Yeah, and perhaps Miller-Liz. the key one there would be, as an example would be DKA. So a patient mm-hmm. you know, who clearly may have a septic source for DKA, but is going to need 12 liters of fluid, whichever way you end up, is clearly not going to be eligible for
4: it. So Dr. Miller, as our uh, content liaison, uh, do you feel that this sort of middle way more than a liter, less than three liters, and, of course, uh, removing some of the situations where you would need fluid administration and then excluding people from outside hospitals. Pragmatically, do you think it enriches our the population for the study to sort of show an effect?
3: So that, that's, that's a very good question, actually, is how, how do, does the, the, that definition apply to clinical practice, right? So uh, does one single... Uh, value of, of hypotension in the last hour, even though if it's better, it puts you in that category of being in a refractory shock or not. And so the, the, that's, that's a very good question that I would like uh, to see if Dr. either Doug or Ivor would want to comment about how, do we, how does this definition apply to clinical practice in general, because it may be completely different to us.
1: Yeah, so if I understand the question correctly, uh, if you just have one measure that meets criteria, but the patient immediately pops back in the hemodynamic stability, that's not fluid non-responsive hypertension. And I think that the uh, protocol, although I'm certainly happy to bring it up, it's online with the paper, had a series of very important steps to ensure that the patient uh, had a further qualifying blood pressure prior to the uh, point-of-first PLR, that they had indeed received a full one liter fluid as a bolus, uh, and they had other criteria. So as you'll see at the top of the slide, a, the initiation was around the hemodynamic uh, endpoint with a trending bit lower, low urine output and other indication, um, uh, that might, you know, be require uh, further resuscitation. So um, I think the point you're making is really crucial when it comes to generalizability, which is, uh, a single point in time measurement is insufficient to qualify you for either entry in this study or necessarily dynamic fluid measure guided therapy.
3: Yeah, so this, this uh, to answer your question, Berenice, under those circumstances, I think that they, this makes sense. It, it matches clinical practice. It's the patient that is deteriorating or has not achieved stability to the initial interventions in which you, you're gonna be uh, wondering, does this patient need more fluid or not? And, and so under those circumstances is where this would have generalized ability.
0: Okay, great. So we're gonna keep, um, move on and talk about how stroke volume assessment was performed and then um, I also want to ask Dr. Douglas to talk about the actual technology that was used. So this is not just regular passive leg raise that we've been doing at the bedside. Um, they used unique technology for this. So I'm going to let Dr. Douglas go ahead and share that.
1: That'd be good. And um, I wonder if Dr. to could bring up just a small group of slides that we've shared just to illustrate this. I'm going to touch on the broad principle involved in bioreactants non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring and I'll, um, as a, I'll just reiterate that the outcome measure that we're tracking here if you could go back to the beginning of that slide set there just a little bit um, the the measure we're tracking is as, as a waveform shift and so what we're looking here is a non-invasive set of four sensors that create essentially an electrical field box around the thorax um, and in between which an induction and sensing uh, delivery of voltage is paired, and flow of blood through the thorax introduces a wave shift time delay in the sensed or detected uh, electrical impulse downstream. Now, this would seem to be a rather minimalistic approach to think about stroke volume, but it's been exceptionally well validated and calibrated uh, in a large number of clinical settings, including cath lab, OR, and in, in animal lab. And if you go to the next slide, the utility of the system is that it is um, uh, highly reproducible and the signal to noise is enhanced by looking at the change, not necessarily in amplitude, you'll see the bio impedance phenomenon, but this change in frequency. And you can think of this in the most simplistic fashion as the old fashioned Doppler shift idea So there's the doctor waiting at the emergency room, waiting for the ambulance to come. Wee-wah, wee-wah, wee-wah. Voltage, you get the compression sound of the wavelength. And because your ED is now on divert, the ambulance is going down the road to the next hospital. Wee-wah. And you get that stretching. And it's that doctor shift phenomenon that essentially underpins the essence of the measurement that's being made that correlates with flow through the thorax. Now, of course, when you have other hemodynamic measurements, such as a blood pressure and a heart rate, integrating the dependent variable stroke volume not cardiac output alone which is helpful but the independent variable sorry the dependent variable stroke volume is really the crucial measure here and i reiterate that because in estimating dynamic responsiveness static measures that we've all essentially been using for decades measure only intravascular pressure in a fashion that is uh, silent to transtherestic pressure swings or dynamic change in a sensitive way. And so the transformative idea here is to measure dynamic responses to perturbations with circulation. So let's look at how that works if we go to the next slide. So here's a, a volunteer Carlos. Uh, he's our outstanding uh, critical care nurse researcher. Um, and we offered him a small bribe if he would allow to uh, perform passive leg raise on him. And as you'll see, these are entirely non-invasive leads that placed anteriorly on the thorax and abdomen. They're uh, fairly durable and so usually last the duration of a critical admission. And um, here's Carlos uh, getting comfortable. Uh, we like to get a baseline of three minutes, but uh, newer iterations of this technology allow for a much shorter baseline. Next slide. Um, we then elevate the legs, uh, as you'll see here, 30 degrees up. Uh, you can use this inflatable balloon. We now have a very snazzy device that is a little elevator lift that takes a fraction of a second to get the patient's legs up, so you don't have to be standing there for a period of time. Uh, in this study, we used a uh, version of this software that requires a three-minute elevation. Newer versions of the technology, Dr. Hanford will speak to, um, uh, can can develop in a much shorter epoch and understanding of reliable stroke volume. And at the end of the, uh, the three minute elevation, next slide, please. We can actually look at the time, the baseline stroke volume and the change in stroke volume indicated by the two red arrows in this figure. And you'll note the baseline summarized three point estimates stroke volume. The uh, elevated, the elevation increased stroke volume here by 25%. And on a, a regression line, looking at that starling curve there, we'll note that the patient is in a fluid-responsive state, and much of the literature has validated a number of, above 9 or 10%, which is 10% in the study, as indicative of fluid-responsive re- state. Now, legitimately, you might say, oh, my goodness, to, uh, Carlos over here needs to get a central line and some presses." But the key point here is that Carlos is not in organ failure and has normal tissue perfusion. So the importance about fluid-responsiveness is about contextual interpretation, Carlos neither has cardiovascular disease or other end-organ dysfunction. We just bought him a cup of coffee, uh, and he was more than happy to oblige. So um, I think the important aspect here is understanding uh, what the inference of these data are. Next slide, please. And so the readout is fairly um, very detailed, actually, and so we've only just touched on one aspect of it, but it really does allow for a very sophisticated understanding of uh, central circulatory hemodynamics, and uh, for the purposes of dynamic response measures, we always like to track the cardiac index response, the change in stroke volume, either to a passive leg raise or fluid bolus. And then uh, we can actually track this out linearly over time. Let me turn now to Dr. Hansel to make some of the additional comments about the technology and its application, realizing that this is one of several techniques available for estimating stroke volume change, but almost every other one available requires an invasive approach. Or some level of uh, technical
2: expertise, including for transesophageal echocardiography. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ivor. And uh, a couple of uh, just key points here. I think you know the, the technology uh, has been has been validated in, in many different uh, ways and uh, against many different uh, uh, comparators uh, against Eric Flow Probe, which is probably the gold standard. Uh, the precision of the technology, in you know, other words, the ability to repeat measurements over and over and over is always within between five and six percent uh, which is excellent performance Swan Gants just to go back to you know moonshot technology uh, we were lucky if we got 15 uh, percent uh, uh, and that's with uh, averaging three measurements you know uh, together so there's really a massive improvement and one of the reasons why we weren't able to frankly do passive leg raise and understand fluid responsiveness a swan Gantz doesn't get you there it doesn't it doesn't hit the ten percent uh number that, that you need. Um, what we do know is TLR uh, using a passive leg raise to assess this, that is actually a really good diagnostic test of whether or not the cardiac output will actually increase when you get fluid. And the performance on that, the sensitivity and specificity across technologies, uh, across clinical settings, has been shown uh, sensitivity and specificity is over uh, 0.9. Uh, so it's a it's a really good performing uh, test. I think the other thing, just to uh, follow on or to add on to what um, Ivor was saying, you know, in Carlos had a a, a stroke-flying change of 25%. That doesn't mean that he needs fluid. But what it does mean is if you were to give Carlos fluid, it is highly likely that you're going to see a sustained rise in cardiac output, a sustained rise in perfusion, because with that additional fluid, what you're going to have is an improvement in cardiac output. And if you think about what you're doing with, with passive leg raise, you're challenging the system dynamically. You're challenging it with about 300 cc's of blood in, um, you know, with a, a very fast uh, response time. So you're 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 giving it to the heart and looking to see what it does. And the stroke volume goes up. So when you actually go ahead and give a 500 cc bolus or additional bolus, it is highly likely that you're going to continue to see a rise in cardiac output. Uh,
3: I I would like to ask uh, a question. Uh, thank you. Thank you for clarifying how it was done. Uh, the, the original PLR is described with starting with them in a semi-recumbent uh, position rather than in the supine position. And I see that uh, what you're describing here, can, can you comment if that was the case or if not? And the second uh, related question has to do with the the changes, the hemodynamic changes after a PLR. And the majority of the literature describes one minute. Here we waited three minutes. How does that uh uh, balance into into the equation for this device?
2: Those, those are great questions. And if I might say, um, I think the majority of the uh, PLRs that were done in the study were actually started as semi-recumbent. We didn't have Carlos in a, in a semi-recumbent position in the slide, but that is the way uh, that um, we taught to, to do the passive leg raise, and that's the way that uh, you know the passive leg raise has, was originally developed. Uh, by Monet and Tabool and, and others. And, and so we uh, worked to adhere to that, uh, you know, very much. On the one minute versus three minutes, uh, what we see is, first of all, the, the technology is looking backwards. So when it displays uh, a value, it's looking at the past uh, 30 seconds or one minute of data. So we want to make sure that we're waiting and having the chance to see the bump. Um, and what we actually see is in about 80 to 90% of the time when you're doing a passive leg grade, if you're going to see the rise in over 10%, you will see it within that first one to two minutes, depending on the timing of, of the technology. We wait three just for any uh, sort of uh, laggards to show up. And, and some do, but not many, as I said, maybe 5 to 10%. And that's actually led to some changes in the technology where uh, as soon as it's over a 10% number, the technology will actually go ahead and call fluid responsiveness. So this what this means uh, at the bedside from an operability perspective, these assessments are actually very easy to be done, and they can typically be done by nursing staff or even technicians uh, with, uh, you know, you can have results within two to three minutes uh, typically. So it's a a very quick, very easy, uh, highly reproducible uh, uh, diagnostic study to, uh, to perform.
1: I should add to that, that just because the nature of our protocol, which we'll talk about in a second, required uh, frequent reassessment going right through the course of day and night, that the ability for this technology to be in the hands of our bedside providers, particularly nurses and research coordinators, was essential. Um, And in terms of the investigative participation in that part, it was somewhat limited.
4: Thank you, Jens. That was a very... uh in-depth explanation. In fact, um, because I can see Divya staring at the phone, texting me, um, in the interest of time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go on and ask myself the question five and bring up the treatment protocol, because I know we've touched on it a few times. And in summary, what, you, uh, what the study did is uh, you had your patients who qualified we did this leg-raising test in a dynamic measurement. Stroke volume changed. Fluid bolus was delivered. Another potentially repeated. And if the stroke volume did not change, we went with pressors. And the reason I'm summarizing this is so that while people are looking at the protocol, I'll just get into the hairy uh, questions. So one of the lines in the methods um, that I was very intrigued by was that uh, the study performed continuous measurements, um, continuous and multiple measurements, uh, by this protocol in the first 72 hours, right? And I was very really intrigued by what continuous means. Does that mean um, it was done every so often? I saw that it was also done with a change in presser doses. So if the presser dose change say six times in an hour, that's 18 minutes or more of measurements.
1: So very curious to know how that worked. Thank you very much. So it is very important to appreciate that the, the the technology device sits on the chip and gives a continuous readout of the hemodynamics. So that's available to the point of care. But let's take the scenario that you've just posited, because our protocol is very precise about that. When there is continuous drip titration to achieve the hemodynamic stability, um, let's say six changes in 30 minutes, and my goodness, we've all done that at some point, Right. The protocol requires that a period of stabilization be present, but no longer than an hour before the next performed measure. So it's really important to understand that what this is not trying to do is micro-titrate; it's trying to give general direction on is this patient still fluid responsive. Um, and I think that this is actually a really crucial point. Fluids are not a titratable intervention; presses are titratable intervention. And that's why trying to use dynamic fluid measures to guide therapy is so much preferable than just empirically re And that's the difference in strategy. However, now let me take it to the other end. What happens if a patient is absolutely rock stable on a dose of vasopressors, but doesn't titrate well off? Well, then we have a backup setting in the protocol that requires at least every four hours. And you'll see that in this loop diagram here for those on the intervention or on the trial, that they definitely must get a re-evaluation every four hours if they're still unstable or on presses. And if they're liberated from presses and stable, every single shift, the patient received a further PLR-guided assessment to confirm that even though they may not be stable or have tissue hyperperfusion, that they, in fact, were no longer fluid responsive during the protocol.
2: So with yeah, that, I think I'll continue. I was going to just add to Ivor's comments. What we were trying to do in the study, and I think uh, what we were looking at was, uh, you know, episodes of intervention. And one of the things that I think was really quite interesting with this, when you're intervening, is the patient in a fluid-responsive state or not? What we saw, and Ivor mentioned that we were also assessing uh, blinded to the uh, care team, if uh, PLRs were not done, we assessed them. Uh, periodically to the study so we could follow the physiology. What was very interesting was patients do change their fluid responsive state, and it's something they move in and out of. We published this in abstract uh, format. Uh, you know, we'll be working that into a future publication. But that makes sense when you think about it. These are highly dynamic changing patients. They're ill. Uh, they're changing. So why wouldn't their fluid status, their preload dependence or independence uh, be changing as well? And it's not just all uh, volume status. So we you know, really uh, start driving this. Before you get fluid to bolus, it, and you really do want to make sure you understand where you are uh, with regard to fluid responsiveness. Dr. Cal, can I briefly answer two points in the chat,
1: which I think are pertinent here about approach, and that's about atrial fibrillation and patients either on vent or breathing deeply. So we know that the impact of dynamic respiration very much impacts uh, static measures, including IVC diameter and direct TTE. Let's be clear, the way that via reactants estimate stroke volume is over numerous respiratory cycles. And so even with very large or very small tidal volume, the estimate of stroke volume is is not biased in a measurably meaningful fashion. There is small variability, but it's integrated across the measurement cycle. And the other is atrial fibrillation. And that's really crucial because ACERB limits a lot of the other technologies' capacity, to do this kind of measurement, be it invasive or non-invasive. And uh, the great benefit here is that the technology is relatively unbiased by uh, irregular heartbeat for the same specific reason. So it has broad applicability and generalizability. Now you might then ask, well, is there anybody, any patient that it's not relevant to? And um, the answer is interesting for another day's discussion. People with very severe decompensated, uh, specifically uh, um, uh, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, or severe, very severe decompensated LDEF failure. Another day's discussion, but that group of patients have negative responses for a whole bunch of different physiologic reasons.
0: Okay, great. So we're going to move on and talk about some of the results of this study. So um, I think one thing that we need to just discuss for a moment is the primary and secondary endpoints so um, uh, Dr. Hansel, if you could review that with us. And then after that, Dr. Douglas, I was hoping that you could review the, um, the results of the study. And we have some of the figures from the manuscript um, as a guide for that.
2: I, I'm sorry, Debbie, I missed, uh, I, I, you were, I broke up on the question for me specifically.
0: Oh yeah, no, I'm sorry. So if you could mention what your primary endpoint for the study was and why that endpoint was specifically chosen.
2: Sure, so what we looked at was uh, fluid balance. Uh, And so we were looking at uh, overall uh, ins and outs, you know, over 72 hours. Um, To be honest, we had had a a retrospective uh, study uh, that had uh, an observational study uh, non-randomized out of the University of Kansas uh, that had uh, had similar results, and we used this to, to take a look at that. Uh, and what we uh, what we saw there was the ability to sort of differentiate in uh, fluid balance. If you think about it, we thought we could go with that because when you look at the physiology on this, uh, passive leg raise and fluid responsiveness is about 50% in patients when you actually check. So if you're not checking this, about half the patients are not going to respond to fluid on average, or maybe 60, 40, 70, 30, but there's always this, this group. So we thought that we could have a direct impact on fluid uh, balance. And, and obviously, uh, if we um, are not changing the way in which fluid is administered and assessing it, then the secondary outcomes, frankly, wouldn't matter. And we were really looking at uh, do we have the ability to impact and change fluid management? Had you. Guys- I'll respond.
0: Okay. I was- Sorry. No, I was just wondering
1: about some patient-centered outcomes like mortality. You know, like mortality, (laughs) very, very important. And so I think it's really imperative to understand there is no other study in the literature demonstrating that a personalized resuscitation approach, however you're going to get there, has an impact on intermediate uh, surrogate endpoints, including fluid balance organ failure. So you will understand that this study is specifically developed uh, almost like a two phase two study to look at intermediate outcomes as primary and patient sensitive outcomes uh, as uh, pre-specified secondaries, including mortality. And I'll throw those data up for you in a minute. Some of them are on this uh, uh, display that you have in front of us right now. But there is no doubt that long-term None of this really matters if what it doesn't do is get patients home in a better shape and able to be functional. So your point is extremely relevant here. Um, these these are are useful, but Divya, I wonder if you mind if I just throw up uh, uh, one of my slides, would that be okay? If I just uh, share a slide a second? So I'll need you to right, allow I'm me to- I'm gonna stop sharing think, and you can go ahead and share. Thank you so much. Um, let, me, let me just share one extra slide here that may be uh, informative, because it has a nice summary panel on it, and I think it gives a, a much clearer display of the kind of primary data than a manuscript. So um, Dr. Hansel has highlighted that the primary uh, uh, intermediate outcome that we're interested in here was, does this strategy impact meaningfully on delivery of care, a process of care measure? And the process of care measure here was 72-hour fluid balance. There was a statistically significant separation, one 37 liters 72 hours, between the intervention, I'm calling it PLR group here in a darker color, and then in uh, rose here, uh, mean a two-liter net fluid balance 72 hours. Now, what you'll remember, of course, is that this is net fluid balance. We can look separately at the administered fluid, and the truth is that there was a very much larger difference in administered fluid balance uh, between the patients and the two arms. But then, So what question is really imperative here? And we developed a series of um, uh, tiered secondary outcomes. And the the first primary outcome was, uh, does this negatively impact organ dysfunction? Because one of the major concerns is that if you tailor therapy using dynamic measures, you could negatively impact end organ tissue, hyperperfusion and organ failure. And there was a very significant reduction in need for renal replacement therapy. That's a, a hard endpoint. Um, there was a significant reduction, a halving of the need for um, intubated mechanical ventilation and that 's a fairly non flexible endpoint, clearly you know foregoing ventilation in one or two patients would be a consideration, but a harving is uh, is clearly impressive. There was a reduction numerically but not significantly in IC length of stay, which I think is fairly notable here um, and then the real functional outcome that we are we're interested to look at, not powered for this outcome, Divya, was um, functional discharge to home as opposed to discharge to another care environment. And clearly what we're trying to do here is develop a hypothesis and a effect size for a future large multi-center RCT. Uh, And you can see that the fraction discharge home and alive was 20% absolute higher than those who were cared for under the usual care paradigm, probably related to this dependency on other organ failures as well as this length of stay uh, component. So those, those were the primary clinical endpoints. And then uh, certainly Dr. Karl, if you'd like to share up the screen again. I can just touch on from the manuscript in a little more agonizing detail, the, um, the comparative data here. And so we had built this series of tiered secondary endpoints, there they are. And you'll see that IC length of stay after the fluid balance number of days in the ventilator uh, vasopressor use, change in serum creatinine, all favored uh, to the point of no further statistical significance, the intervention on the PLR-guided uh, resuscitation. Um, and then as we sort of ran out of power, because now it becomes more exploratory, uh, these improvements in patient-sensitive outcomes became relevant. What we were really interested in was the combined effect of uh, the, the mortality rate that's the middle of the bottom line. And MACE, uh, this is the, co- co- the combined cardiovascular outcome, uh, including mortality and cardiovascular events. And so what we'll note is that uh, there's some numeric preference or uh, difference favoring the intervention, but these, none of these were statistically significant. And We clearly ran out of power to uh, make a determination of that. So the, the, these are unanswered and very, very important questions. Um, I don't know how much more detail you'd like me to discuss the results in. These just reiterate the findings in box plots format, but um, certainly I would encourage readers to look in detail at the appendix, uh, as one would imagine with a large RCT like this, there's more data in the appendix than in the main manuscript.
4: Dr. Douglas, Dr. Hansel, I know that I can see Dr. Morelis is uh, ready with a couple follow-ups, but what we'll do in interest of time, right, is... Question seven is pretty much the last question, which I do really want to have you guys spend some time on. And then, Dr. Mireles, we can have the follow-through, because I have a few, too. Lovely. Okay, so our next question was, can you explain, uh, you, you describe in the methods that it's an intention to treat analysis. And then, due to some of the exclusions that happen on both in both the arms, it was transitioned to modified intent to uh, treat. So, intention to treat. So, does that? What were those factors? If you could highlight for our, uh, you know, um, listeners, and then, do you think that made the analysis stronger or more, or, and more, and can I still kept the bias off of it?
2: Yeah, I think those are really. In in it's a, it's a great question and a very important one. I think you know when we looked at. Uh, well, as we originally designed the study, we were always planning to do a modified intention-to-treat analysis uh, for this uh, approach uh, because uh, what this really – in order to see an impact, obviously, you need to uh, be exposed to the therapy. And so, with the uh, monitoring, that's very different than um, you know, a, a point intervention. And so, we wanted to make sure that you could control that path. Uh, you know, exclusions for surgery, exclusions for, you know, loss of control of the, of the protocol. The safety, however, I mean, the reason why, the main reason why you also do uh, an intention uh, intention to treat analysis uh, is to make sure that you're not shortcutting your safety events. And so that's why when we looked at the safety aspects of the trial, we did it on the entire, uh, you know, uh, entire enrolled population. When we were looking for efficacy outcome, we'd always plan to look at a modified intention-to-treat analysis. I don't know, Ivor, if you want to add anything to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you I have think got to actually look at this. This is a point that we had a lot of fun with with our reviewers. Um, and, and that is that if a patient, because, for example, have locked out of a fluid modifiable protocol, because, oh, by the way, now I'm doing renal replacement therapy, you know, including them in the primary intention to treat analysis is helpful if you're looking for adverse events, but it's going to bias to the null in a way that is not intentional in the, uh, in the direct ITT. And I think it's a pervasive challenge that we have in this field. So it's not unique to the study. I think it's in general in food resuscitation studies is developing uh, tiered uh, intention to treat approaches that Uh, PASS muster both with a DSMB, which we had, data safety safety monitor, as well as potential reviewers. Because I think this issue of transparency is imperative. There really has to be an ability to track through the patients in a study like this and ask the simple question, if I saw a patient who looks like this, could I expect a comparable outcome if I do X, Y, or Z? And that, I mean, listen, we're all on the other end of the bedside regularly. So I really must emphasize that the use of the MITT here is not a statistical slide ahead. It's like legitimately, if a patient for dialysis, just can't fix your fluids any
2: other way.
4: That's fair. And um, I have two simple follow-ups uh, for each of you, Dr. Hansel. Uh, 13 centers, two countries, um, and the study was done over quite a bit of time. Um, I'm very... We took so much time to enroll these patients. Is it because it was a convenient sample, or is it because of some other reason?
2: Practically, you know, as I said, what we wanted to do uh, originally was to make sure, and, and what we succeeded in doing was making sure we got access to the patients before uh, you know an extensive amount of fluid was given. This is a real challenge in the United States today because with the rollout of Step One. Uh, You know, practice has evolved and changed to the point where uh, we're very quick. Once a sepsis diagnosis is identified or suspected sepsis is identified, we're very quick to go ahead and give the fluid. So, to get in, actually identify the patient, get the patient enrolled between that one and three liters was very, very challenging. I think uh, the other thing that we're talking about for enrollment that that was also very challenging is, as we know, and one of the reasons that step one is a challenging measure is that patients don't necessarily arrive with septic shock stamped across their forehead. Uh, it is, it's, a, it's an evolving syndrome, and it may take four or five hours to evolve, and that may occur, you know, frankly, in, in the emergency room. And so uh, it, it's a, the enrollment here, you really need to be following patients as well. So it's a very clinical enrollment, uh, and you have a very narrow one to do it. And that's really, I think, what drove the uh, main challenge around the length of time in the study. Got
4: it. And to follow up with Dr. Douglas, so clearly I think we're showing that from the time of Dr. River's study, we have really learned, or at least I I am hoping that we've learned that addressing sepsis quickly is important, which is why those fluids are being addressed early, antibiotics are being addressed early. Uh, So how do you think the fact that the treatment arm was unblinded, the usual care arm was unblinded, do you think that could have changed outcomes here? Because I, I think that brings that's related to your earlier issue about how aggressive
1: we are with treatment now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's clear. The reason I've, I wrote that as the primary limitation of the study is that, you know, an unblinded intervention or control arm is going to introduce some unmeasured confounding, for sure. Um, not only that, but I want to come back to this point of how long it takes to run sepsis trials. I, I'm running another study right now called Clovers with the NIH Pedal Network. And we've been down for the better part of nine months or eight months through COVID-19. And that is that usual care patterns shift temporally. So it's not just a case of, you know, am I doing the right thing today? Am I doing the same thing as I was doing last week? I, I think this is a very legitimate critique, both of our paper and all papers in the area. And so I think that any interpretation and generalization should be conditioned by that as an exception.
4: With that, Dr. Mireles, I'll open the floor to you so that, you know, you have, you can have a good finishing conversation for this fantastic study that's been shared. And I'll let Divya jump in right now as well. Uh,
3: I, I first of, first of all, again, thank you, Doug and Ivor for, for, sharing your, your comments. I, I, I and you discussed a little bit about this in your, in the discussion of the paper Ivor, but, um. There were, there's two issues, uh, uh, recognizing that the uh, fluid balance had a wide uh, confidence interval, uh, recognizing that fluid balance is associated with increased mortality and that many things affect the fluid balance per se. How do you, and, and that the difference in fluid administered is 1.3 liters. How, how do you reconcile this? Was it the fluid balance or is, you, is, is that really 1.3 liters difference that made all the effect that you saw on all those organs?
1: Yeah, um, I'm going to venture to suggest that the fluid balance is a, a really interesting uh, epiphenomena. Remember that this is not a study that targets difference in fluid balance. That's focus, ongoing. This is about optimizing hemodynamics with fluid balance as a consequence. And so I think that the patient-sensitive measures that has prompted us are going to end up being far more important, regardless of what the absolute fluid difference is. I would argue that measures such as time to resolution of fluid responsiveness, time to optimization of hemodynamics, are going to as we work on this area even more, become even more important than the um, quantitative assessment of difference in fluid given or fluid balance over any specific 72-hour period. And I think that the point you appreciate is that the wide confidence bounds reiterates how important it is to personalize the intervention based on the physiologic responsiveness. In fact, one might have assumed that if the confidence bounds of these estimates had been narrow. It would probably be very little point in doing uh, physiologically guided resuscitation. Why not then just randomise people to fluid liberal or fluid conservative? And and we're trying to answer that question obviously in this other study at the same time. I I I I think that what you conclude from this is that um, uh, this is a first good demonstration of an intermediate outcome variable uh, that gives a strong safety and a good intermediate efficacy outcome that warrants much more substantial
2: validation externally. I think also just to add on to what Ivor was saying, I think there's a, a broader context here that I think is helpful in understanding this. And I agree with Ivor. I actually don't think it's the degree of fluid separation that drove this in the study. Um, you look in the surgical literature where fluid responsiveness has been studied um, you know, fairly extensively across, using different approaches to measuring stroke volume. Um, and you see these uh, pulmonary signals, you see the renal signals, and you actually look in detail, for instance, in the Fedora study, which was a large uh, multicenter study in Europe, there is not that much in the way of fluid difference between the two groups. There is a difference in timing. You see less fluid in the OR, typically more in the post-op period and resuscitation, but you look at overall fluid, there's not a strong difference. When we look at the University of Kansas study, they had a difference of about 3.5 liters. We came back in at 1.5. I think that's an evolution in care over those time periods. We've probably gotten a little more restricted, but I think this is more about giving fluid only when the uh, physiology is adapted to handle it and improve perfusion. If you're giving fluid in the other half of the time where you're not impacting uh, perfusion, you're simply increasing uh, interstitial edema or you're, uh, you know, impacting uh, the lungs, the kidneys, other uh, other organ systems. And I think that's what we're talking about. This is really about titrating fluid to the physiology and personalizing it. It's not so much about giving less fluid. Thank you.
0: So um, there are a couple of questions um, that the um, uh, participants have asked that I wanna kind of address. Um, and I'll try to go through some of them. So one of the questions that uh, the participants had is how many patients um, were on the on presser on pressure? I'm sorry, on support before giving them fluid boluses in the um, uh, in the intervention. There, do you guys have any idea of if the majority of the patients were on pressors?
1: Uh, were- no, no, uh, it, it was somewhere like twenty something percent. But I'm going to pull that number off while we're speaking. But it was not the majority by any means. And in fact, um, I, as we've tracked those patients through uh, using dynamic fluid measure responsiveness, a good number of those people actually come up pressors when they're more effectively resuscitated. Okay. Um,
0: another question uh, um, we have is. Um, We've seen patients with continued improvement in stroke volume using NICOM despite receiving large amounts of fluids. How do we interpret the results outside the initial sepsis resuscitation?
1: Well, I mean, I think that's a legitimate call. I'm going to ask Dr. Hansel to talk about the operating room where these long cases and he's used it very sensitively. It's clear that the physiology remains relevant well beyond the prime resuscitation period. I'm going to give a specific couple of people that we've seen with COVID-19 where exactly this phenomenon is true. People getting pounded with fluid, still in shock, and are PLR responsive and get more fluid. Now, not always crystalloid, sometimes colloid, um, but it is very important to understand that this idea of personalizing response uh, uh, resuscitation is about providing optimal circulatory filling. And the level of systemic vasodilatation, but particularly venodilatation, will be highly variable patient to patient. And I think that although I'm skeptical to refer to this disease as cytokine storm, there is absolutely no doubt that there is a segment of these patients that have a massive cytokine mediated vasodilatory, nitric oxide mediated vasodilatation. So in such case, that's
2: exactly what happens.
1: Uh, Dr. Hansel, what's your experience in the OR?
2: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, they were asking about stroke volume change. Uh, you know, there are many things that will, you know, continue to improve stroke volume. Stroke volume is very dynamic when you start looking at it. Um, when you're actually watching this and, and you're, uh, you know, having the ability to monitor in real time what's happening in stroke volume, um, we were designed, I think, similar to the way we were designed to maintain blood pressure until we can't. We also work hard to develop and, and maintain um, uh, cardiac output and, and forward flow. And you'll see this very interesting dance of heart rate and stroke volume, and they're inversely related. And so when you're talking about just stroke volume improving or uh, or decreasing, there are many things that come to bear that other than fluid. And so we're using stroke volume here, just to be very specific, on a very uh, discrete diagnostic journey of is fluid likely to improve cardiac output Uh, and answering that question. So the, the question was broadly about getting fluid and stroke volume changing in in other settings. uh, Yes, you'll see uh, many reasons, obviously, why your stroke volume uh, may climb or may fall. Uh, It's a very dynamic uh, physiology when you start watching it.
0: Thank you, Dr. Hansel. Um, We're uh, unfortunately out of time. We have lots of other great questions um, that the participants have been asking, but unfortunately we're gonna have to end it here. I wanna thank Dr. Hansel, Dr. Morales and Dr. Douglas for your time. We really really, truly appreciate your your time and your expertise. Um, And um, before we end, I wanna just take a minute to highlight CHESS 2020, which is our premier educational event. We're excited to announce that CHESS 2020 has gone completely virtual. And that means you'll have an opportunity to reconnect with your colleagues interact with experts in your field and experience gaming like you've never have before, all from the convenience of your own home or institution. Um, And if you've never been able to attend uh, due to geographic restrictions, this is a really great chance to um, join because it's all virtual. So hopefully we'll see you there. Thank you guys. We really appreciate you, um, your time and your, and the expertise you've shared with us.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Uh, and we're, we're very appreciative of the invitation to chest and to the excellent
0: moderators. Thank you. Thank,
2: Thank, you. Thank you all very, very much.
0: It's a privilege.